Hello, everybody. Welcome to Narrative Live on a Tuesday night. We have a very special show tonight as we look into the Bowsman file, which I think is one of the most interesting stories uh, narrative has ever covered, and it looks at uh, the activities of Charles Bowsman. And also, we're going to be looking at the broader militia movement in Pennsylvania, and that's why the guy next to me is here, Carter Walker. He's from the Lancaster Online newspaper. Carter, how are you today? I'm good. Thank you for having me. It's great to have you on, and you have a great scoop about what happened at that January 3rd meeting, the three days before January the 6th that will happen in your region in Lancaster, and we'll get into that in a bit. On the other side, here's Grant Stern, the very famous, legendary Grant Stern. I've never seen you with a beard that's fulsome as this. How are you tonight? The beard is fine. I'm okay. (laughs) (laughs) You know, I'm so excited you're here because we're going to dig into Bowsman's sort of intelligence network, which is fascinating and interesting and uh, very revealing about who he is or might be. And also, just here in voice only, Gal Suburban, we all know her online. Sometimes you have a very uh, name that I can't even repeat, Gal, but we won't try to say it now. But, you know, if this was a family show, we wouldn't repeat it. But we can swear on the show, but I'm still not going to say it. How are you doing, Gal? I'm good. How are you? Thanks for having me. It's so good to have you on. And you've got this incredible found uh, find that you got out of Russian television, which is Bowsman basically spinning January the 6th to a Russian audience. And we're going to play a little bit of that video coming up a little later on. So there's a lot to deal with, plus three different subpoenas that just came from the January the 6th committee. And Gal, you've got the names on those, don't you? Um, it'll be good to just run through with everybody uh, who the three people are and then uh, get some ideas on what, who, they, who they might represent. I think one of them was Arthur Schwartz, which is a, a name that uh, Grant recognized. And well, how do you recognize Arthur Schwartz and why do you recognize him? Oh, because he sends me mean tweets sometimes. Oh, he does? Oh. He doesn't mean tweet you? No, I don't know I'm aware of. I better go back and check. So um, so he's like Donald Trump Jr.'s best friend. Ah, so. Uh, and, and a also, publicist. A publicist. Yeah. That's, that's his official yeah. term. And yeah, what's his, do we know what he did for uh, January the 6th? What's the story there with his involvement? Uh, you know. Probably hung out with Donald Trump Jr. From, <laughs> I mean, if I had to guess, get he's those just, you know, while we all talk, and then uh, we'll take a good look at what was going on there. Gal, do you have the names in the meantime? What they're saying good. about, yeah, with yeah. Andy uh, Sarabian, I think it is, and yeah. Arthur Schwartz both served as advisors to uh, Donald Trump Jr. And it looks like they are saying that they were communicating with individuals like Kimberly Guilfoyle regarding the rally, so maybe set up or. Something I haven't read the entire subpoena yet, but it looks like overall it was assisting with the former president's speech on the 6th. So that's an important one. That's Ross Worthington, who Hmm. may have been the speechwriter. I haven't heard that name before. Have any of you heard that name before? No, I don't know who Ross Worthington is. It's interesting. The speech was sounds like a very, fake name. It does, doesn't it? <laughs> All of them sound a little fake. But it's interesting that Arthur Schwartz. I mean, I think he's got ties to Israel, if I'm not mistaken. There's some um, deep ties, which wouldn't surprise me because of the Trump administration's ties back there, anyhow. But uh, do you know anything about his ties there, Grant, or anything like that? No, I can't say right now. I'd have, you know, <laughs> yeah. subpoenas are coming out. Uh, you know. So um, we'll get get the subpoenas and we'll see what else we can find out about them. And we'll uh, keep talking about the three new subpoenas. These are interesting names. They sort of are names that are not public figures, but are clearly uh, behind the scenes. Very important in terms of getting Trump sort of setting up that day for Donald Trump. So let's move to your story, Carter, because it's so interesting. This came out of the 
we first came across the story when we spoke about Charles Bowsman, who's this now quite famous provocateur. Maybe he's a disinformation agent for the Russia. He ran an organization and a newspaper called Russia Insider. And that Russia Insider appears to have been not only a sort of a mouthpiece for Kremlin propaganda, but also a real organizing point for right-wing militias and also the National Justice Party, which is the closest thing we have to the Nazi party here. And that all happened at this barn that he has, which is in your neighborhood there. Is that right? Did these, he has this barn that uh, seems to be a gathering point of uh, extremists. Uh, yeah, uh, he opened up his barn to the National Justice Party uh, members. You know, he had met them through uh, the Right Stuff Network and done a couple of podcast shows at, with them, I believe. And you're right, he, over on Millersville Pike, which is probably about three miles from where I'm sitting right now. In August of 2020, he let them use his facility to you know, hold their formation meeting. Yeah, this is the um, barn in question. It's unusually uh, secluded in a sort of a suburban neighborhood. It doesn't feel like it's that rural, but it seems to be quite secluded with those trees surrounding it. And it was also the place where on the January the 3rd, Bowsman also met with uh, Sean Moon. So that is an interesting connection that on January the 3rd, you know, two of the most significant or two very significant people who attended January the 3rd, Bowsman, who is, you know, obviously, or not obviously, but seems to be connected to the Russian Orthodox Church, and then also the Reverend Sean Moon of the Moonies were there on January the 3rd at the barn, this barn in question. But that's not where the story we're talking about takes place because there was, according to one indictment, that uh, one person was alleged by the feds that they had advised everyone that there was going to be a meeting of leaders that was taking place in Lancaster. And is, that's when we first heard about this January the 3rd meeting. Is that right, Carter? Uh, yeah, the, um, the guy you're referencing is James Bremy. He's a oath keeper out of New Jersey who was arrested for storming the Capitol on January 6th. And in that indictment, they talk about him inviting people to come to this meeting, particularly the head of the Oath Keepers, and inviting him to come there for a meeting of the leaders. And it was also going to be a very secret meeting, right? There was no cell phones, and it was meant to be all hush-hush, and only the leadership was going to be there. Right. I believe it was on December 21st, he sent that text, said this is going to be for leadership only, so we can get our comms on point you know, ahead of the show, which he was referencing the show being uh, the January 6th rally. Mm -hmm. Stuart Rhodes didn't accept his invitation, but Remy was certainly billing it as, you know, this coordination meeting where people were going to get their communications together and, uh, you know, make sure they were aligned with other groups before they got down there on the sick. Now, you found out that that's not, in fact, what happened. That meeting that took place or the meeting that's believed to have taken place was not as a meeting of leaders. It was a meeting basically about radios. Right. Yeah. What I found was uh, I was able to talk to the gentleman who had rented the facility. The, it was at the Solanco Fairgrounds, which they host, you know, swap meets and farmers markets, the fair, obviously, things like that. But you can also rent out these buildings for private events. And I spoke with the guy who rented that building, as well as uh, another attendee of that meeting on January 3rd, and acquired a PowerPoint, too, that was displayed at the meeting. And what all that showed and what they all told me was that you know, this is basically a group of uh, preppers, you know, people who are interested in, you know, preparing for the end of the world or natural disasters or that type of thing, talking mm -hmm. about how they could coordinate their communications with each other in the event of any natural disaster. It touched on armed resistance a little bit, but uh, so this is just a meeting of preppers. They were not, not intended to be a setup for January the 6th. Yeah, well, that's certainly the impression the people who were there gave me, you know, that basically how they put it was, well, you know, yeah, we were here to talk about prepping. 
and communication for prepping, but there were a couple of people, one of the, my sources put it as one nut job, and I think he was referring to Bremi, wanted to talk about January 6th and make it about January 6th. But it they seems said, to no, make sense. Yeah, I mean, there were a lot of people in your part of the world who are heading mm -hmm. to January the 6th on January the 3rd. So it certainly feels like it could have been an interesting place to have a meeting. Uh, certainly the Moonies and the uh, Bowsmen were there. It seems like some of the Oath Keepers were there. Were any other big groups there on January the 3rd that you're aware of? Well, we had, you might know already, we had a protest outside of Pennsylvania House Speaker Brian Cutler's home that day, which, you know, was attended by some Stop the Steal activists and uh, other folks like that. Reopen PA, which is a group, was pushing to end pandemic lockdowns. I believe they were there also. And I believe Bowsman was actually there with the Moonies as well at this rally outside of Cutler's house, which right. is actually in Quarryville. And as far as I can tell, I think those two events were going on at the same time. Mm -hmm. But it's not clear if anybody from one event crossed over to the other. Right. So just simultaneous events, but nothing mm -hmm. planning January the 6th that you're aware of. Well, I think, I mean, the meeting from this PowerPoint, which I want to point out, I was able to uh, verify independent of the person who gave it to me that this was actually what was shown at this meeting. Mm -hmm. You know, certainly if you scroll through it, you, you see that there's nothing referencing January 6th in there specifically. But, you know, as the folks who were there were telling me, there were people at the end of the meeting that wanted to uh, talk about January 6th. You know, I didn't right, get to speak to any of those people. So it's unclear what conversations they might have had after that, if there's anything other than just them trading phone numbers. But as far as I could tell, planning January 6th didn't seem to be the main focus of the meeting. It's amazing how many PowerPoints are involved in uh, trying to overthrow the government of the United States of America. This is this, at least the second one I can think of. Uh, they're talking about in order to train for possibilities, we need to stay under the radar of enforcement bodies. You know, that sounds like it could be used under very different terms or under different mm -hmm. situation. Keep to FCC regulations as much as possible, blend into background traffic. And the rest of this sort of goes on and talks about how basically to operate the radio frequencies and to, you know, go undetected or at least not uh, be too, you know, too much of a presence so that you might get detected if you're using right. these emergency frequencies and the like. I mean, there's nothing that significant. The only thing that did really stand up to me is they did speak about these Chinese walkie-talkies, which were walkie-talkies that they used at on January the 6th. You know, they used these Chinese-issued walkie-talkies. Mm -hmm. And I think they point out here that the walkie-talkies are not actually uh, limiting to certain bands. So those walkie-talkies allow you, if they're made in China, to use some of these emergency frequencies or these frequencies which you normally wouldn't have access to. Right. I think one of the more interesting things from the PowerPoint, if you scroll up to the very second slide, right after mm. the title slide, they talk there about, should be a little bit above that, they talk about fourth and fifth generation warfare. That is um, interesting. Which is, you know, I'm not an expert on that. I don't want to claim to be, but from what I understand is how in a modern war setting, a smaller force could confront a larger force. And one of the quotes I have in the story from one of the guys attending this that really struck me, I guess, is he was telling me that a lot of the folks in the militia and prepper movements or these, you know, anti-government movements, of course, they wouldn't characterize themselves that way. But that's beside the point. But they kind of view the need to stage a resistance or at some point in the future to defend themselves against a tyrannical government as something that's inevitable. And he told me that a lot of people in these circles see the political process as broken. So 
I thought that was interesting that, you know, while perhaps maybe their emergency natural disasters might have been their main focus, certainly in the back of their mind or at the forefront, you can see this is the second slide that they might need to age in armed resistance at some point in the future. Yeah, that is really fascinating. The only person I know talks about uh, the fourth and fifth generation warfare is Dave Troy. Grant, do you know much about fourth and fifth generation warfare? Is that something that rings a bell to you in terms of what, what does it mean? I mean, it's a nice buzzword. It just mm. means modern warfare. Hybrid warfare right. is what most people call it. You know, asymmetric warfare. You know, okay. those are more commonly used terms. I mean... So this is unusual for a prepper meeting, although you could sort of understand why they might want to be planning for this. It could also apply, of course, to the events that could follow January the 6th. Right. I think a well, lot of these folks were, at the time, they felt that um, martial law was imminent to be imposed. So I think that's why they wanted to get their communications in line because they felt we were about to enter this type of situation where maybe resistance becomes necessary. And I can add to Zeb for you, mm. um, being down in Florida, there's a lot of these groups that I wouldn't even say that their main focus is disaster relief. I think they utilize disaster relief to train for the inevitable war that they foresee. So right. I actually think they use the nonprofits and the 501c3s of these groups that can go in and do you know, disaster relief to acquire supplies, equipment, and then also train tax-free. Hmm. I don't think there's any state in the, the nation that allows private militias, really. Mm -hmm. So, right. you know, what, what she's saying is pretty accurate. And I noticed that you said that there was discussion of the head of the Oath Keepers, Stuart Rhodes, going to this meeting, but he didn't attend. Mm -hmm. And, you know, there's a big controversy unfolding about, you know, how they handle Mr. Rhodes. But pretty much all of his associates that attended January 6th have been arrested and charged with conspiracy. Mm -hmm. But he was named as an un unindicted co-conspirator. So, yeah. You know, we just saw the attorney general come out and give his first major public statement about January 6th. And one of the things he mentioned is that whether you're there or not, we're looking at you, we may charge you. That would apply to him. Mm -hmm. But he has not been charged and likely no. won't. He's named as an unindicted co-conspirator mm -hmm. conspirator in a conspiracy case, or at mm -hmm. least he's named in the case. I don't think he's called an unindicted co-conspirator. You know, there's right. so many indictments. In the, so that could mean <laughs> he's either cooperating. He could be cooperating. That's what I think. Yeah. Or, you know, in theory, you know, there's no reason to speculate. It's just enough to say that a lot of his associates have been charged the conspiracy cases. And those are the more, you know, serious cases from January 6th. Those are mm -hmm. people that are being accused of conspiring to stop a government process from happening. Right. Uh, an official proceeding. A lot of this, you know, is so fascinating to me because of the timing and the location. I mean, you know, Carter, you live in an area where a lot of activity was going on when it comes to planning for January the 6th and just in terms of the, just the growth of extremism. I mean, Grant was saying just before we got on the air, I mean, the location's kind of perfect between, I guess, New York and uh, DC, but also, you know, bridging into some of the heartland. But, you know, this is a map I've just got of uh, Bowsman and the Moonies, how close they are to their location. And it's interesting that Bowsman, who came from Russia, even though he was born in this area, chose to resettle here for his, you know, launch of his publication and also his, you know, when we think some sort of operation that he was involved in. Mm -hmm. So why is, right, why is there yeah. so much extremism? Uh, well, you know, I think that's hard to say. Lancaster's had a long history, uh, unfortunately, with activity like this. You know, we've had several KKK rallies over the years and chapters here as well. We had Identity Europa here just a few years ago. Mm. And it does seem to South Central PA in general just has had a lot of extremist anti-government activity as well as uh, white nationalist activity over the year. I think... Um, it's hard to know exactly what about this area I think produces that or if folks 
around here who hold those beliefs are more open to expressing them. You know, so it goes a, to the history lot. of Pennsylvania as well, doesn't it? I mean, there's a lot of right. that sort of independent thinking going on there. Well, yeah, yeah. Uh, if I might jump in, mm-hmm. um, I'm yes. not a local, but uh, you know, in my research, we found that there was a lot of Russian activity centered around southeastern Pennsylvania and specifically Philadelphia. And, you know, I'd have to dig through some very extensive notes to tell you, but there's this one group that we were monitoring and they actually set up like a little house and we mapped it out and it was in, uh, you know, Southern New Jersey. And when we mapped it out, it was like right in between Brighton Beach and Philadelphia, like the (laughs) midpoint. And I think that just kind of tells you, you know, there's been a lot of immigration to those areas. There's uh, large communities there. And, you know, one of our big focuses of research was former Republican Congressman Kurt Weldon, Mm -hmm. who interestingly worked on a plan to get $100 million over to the head of the FSB, because as he said at the time, he's in with Putin, (laughs) (laughs) which is objectively true. And (laughs) by the way, the same head of the FSB today, Uh, that was interestingly in Wired magazine. Wow. So, you know, Weldon was uh, Dana Rohrabacher before Dana Rohrabacher was Dana Rohrabacher in the public eye Mm -hmm. when it comes to like your pro-Russia, your Russophile uh, members of Congress. Right. Didn't Weldon um, speak on the House floor in, I think it was like 2014, 2015, to get Tony Schaefer's security clearance returned to him? Oh, that's very interesting. I hadn't heard anything about that. He Hmm. did. Okay. It was in October of uh, 2014. And Tony Schaefer, he was dealing with an incident where he lost his top secret security clearance working at the DIA. And Kurt Weldon went on the House floor and basically scolded the DOD for taking away Tony Schaefer's um, security clearance. So that's really interesting that you bring him up. You know, so um, I love having yeah. all these people together that are not only in the same room because you've all got such incredible knowledge. Um, it's great to have you share them. Uh, that is really interesting. So um, before you leave uh, Carter's uh, reporting here, Carter, is there anything else you think we need to know about your part of the world there, about you know Pennsylvania in particular, but also about the, you know, as the growing concern around extremism uh, continues to be an issue uh, heading into the elections next year, this year? Yeah, well, I think it's definitely something I'm going to be keeping an eye on. You know, we've had other things happen here, like you mentioned, with the National Justice Party and following uh, right now some stickering, which if you guys are familiar with, it's like a propaganda method where folks will put, you know, stickers with messages and QR codes. And I'm looking to keep an eye on that, see what kind of activity we see in 2022, as as well as, um, you know, election misinformation. One of the things I'm really curious to see and hopefully we'll get some more information about this if and when the January 6th committee ever publishes a report. But obviously, Speaker Brian Cutler had a phone call, two phone calls, I believe, with Donald Trump in that post-election right. period. So it'd be great if we can get some inf- more information about what was said on that. That's interesting. I'm surprised yeah, that hasn't come out yet. That's a really good thing to look for. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you so much. I really appreciate your reporting here because it's rare to find, and i got to say, I'm impressed that uh, the, your newsroom is doing this kind of stuff. And I think that's because of a special initiative that is happening at your newspaper group where, you know, uh, more investigative journalists are being hired. Yeah, we have a nonprofit wing through the uh, organization that owns the newspaper called the Lancaster County Local Journalism Fund. 
And this is one of their initiatives was to fund my position covering uh, extremism and hate groups and misinformation. So they're making a commitment, I think, to cover our community, not just in daily coverage, which was what I was doing, but in a more in-depth way. Sounds great. It's a really important initiative. I hope other newsrooms do that. And, you know, just we need a lot more eyes, especially in smaller communities as to what's going on. So that's fantastic. And good job. Definitely. Great story. You, you broke a big one here. And keep us informed if anything else comes up. We really appreciate it. Thank you. I definitely will. And thank you for having me. Thanks very much for being here, Carter. That's Carter Walker from the Lancaster Online newspaper. Um, I'm going to say goodbye to you, Carter, and then I'm just going to bring up Grant here and just go, there you go. Thanks. That's great. Carter did a good job with that uh, article. I've been trying to figure out what happened on January 3rd for a long, long time. And then there he was being able to crack that. So it still feels to me a little suspicious, doesn't it, Grant? It feels like there's something here that could have been perhaps relevant to January the 6th. I don't know. You know, obviously there's a link to January the 6th, but there's also a lot of people in these kind of circles that are very aspirational. And judging by what I could read from that PowerPoint, mm. maybe they could have used some communications training after all. <laughs> Gal, what did you think of it? Did we talk to anybody or did he get a chance to see what was actually spoken of? Because the PowerPoint really, you it's know, about the I think it, it probably yeah. would be mundane. Yeah, I think they wouldn't probably write anything down in particular for, you know, something that they were planning. It would be probably more verbal. Right. They're not going to be advertising <laughs> well, uh, here. Here's how we're going to take over the, yeah. <laughs> the, government, the government right after we overthrow the election. So, yeah, probably not so not in a PowerPoint. Although they did have a PowerPoint, another one, showing exactly how they would use it. So maybe. And I did notice he did have to omit a few pages from his source that he received that PDF from. So there could be more there that just he wasn't able to disclose just oh, yeah, the they, source. Yeah, there's another piece of this article here at the bottom, which talks about he had another source who didn't attend that meeting, who had a separate list of uh, things that they were going to get for January the 6th that he said were passed around at that meeting. So that might have been an indication that there was something else maybe going on the sidelines of that meeting uh, that we're not aware of in terms of the main agenda. So certainly worth keeping an eye on that. Should we turn now to Bowsman? Because I'm just fascinated by this guy. Not that we haven't spoken about him, but Let's reset everybody on who he really is. You know, he claims to be a legitimate American business owner, that he happened to be the son of an Associated Press, I think it was bureau chief out of Russia, and uh, spent money, many of his years growing up in Russia, but also spent some time in the United States. And his decision to start Russia Insider came out of him being in Moscow and being really frustrated by the type of news, he said, or the news coverage that Russians were getting. And so he started this publication and then decided to move back to the United States just in time for, I think it was 2016 when he moved back, maybe, or maybe 2017, just in time for his you know, to plan to take part in the radicalization of some parts of Pennsylvania. Because at that barn that we showed you earlier on, which is one of three properties that he bought when he arrived back in Pennsylvania, um, he held a bunch of meetings, including one for the launch of the National Justice Party. So Grant, this guy is, in my opinion, and I'll just say this is my opinion, he's a disinformation agent. And I think we've been able to prove that he he has ties to the Russian Orthodox Church, and that's you know through specifically uh, Alexei Kobov, who's an operative for the Russian Orthodox Church, but you know ultimately directly tied to Konstantin Malofiev, who is the oligarch who's friendliest with the Russian Orthodox Church, and obviously very friendly to Vladimir Putin as well. And Alexei Kobov is also the guy who does a lot of the homeschooling operations in the United States. He's sort of a, you know a pretty uh, adept kind of uh, operative. And these two, uh, Charles Bowsman and Alexei Komov, have communications going between them where Bowsman is asking Komov to arrange funding for Russian insider from Malofiev. So it does seem to me that you can say with, you know, with a certain amount of confidence, I would say with a certain amount of confidence, that there's a Russian operative or at least an operative for the Russian Orthodox Church. 
Would you concur? Uh, you know, I can't tell you if he's an operative for the Russian Orthodox Church, but I can tell you that the Russian Orthodox Church was captured by the Soviet Union many, many, many decades ago, mm -hmm. and it is actively deployed by the intelligence services of Russia. Mm -hmm. So it's not like a normal church. And if you've been following what's happening in Ukraine, one of the big things that happened is that there was a schism between the Ukrainian Orthodox Church and the Russian Orthodox Church. So, you know, his ties to the Russian Orthodox Church are unusual. His ties to Mr. Malafeyev are also something that's highlight worthy. Mm -hmm. uh, he was involved in the Russian efforts to infiltrate the NRA. Mm -hmm. You know, he's a financier. And uh, Mr. Bousman is, uh, you know, he's a propagandist. Uh, as you said, disinformation agent. That's, you know, that's a not inaccurate description of what his job is. I mean, I don't think that he doesn't believe what he's saying, mm. which is, you know, not unusual in the propagandist space. But, you know, you're right. His timing around uh, parachuting back into America is a little bit suspect looking, just considering about all the foreign interference that we've seen over the last several years and then ending with January 6th and his departure. And um, I would just point out that he's not the first American. He's not going to be the last one to fall under the spell of Russia's good graces. And they all wound up traveling there. I mean, I think that's like pretty much like, you know, every one of these stories involving someone getting tied up with Russia involves some sort of trip to Moscow. So it's true. like, <laughs> it's I, I mean, very it's cheap. Apparently, Americans quite cheap to buy. All you need is a trip to Moscow and a couple of good uh, vodkas and you're, you've got them. Uh, but Sometimes more than that, but yes. <laughs> yes, it's just, there's always a trip to Moscow involved and yeah. then all of a sudden weird things happen. And we can point at a lot of different people where that happened uh, with mm -hmm. General Michael Flynn. Took a trip to Russia, mm -hmm. had dinner with Putin. All of a sudden, you know, criminal investigations, etc. I'm yeah. streamlining that story tremendously. Yeah. I want to just quickly, before we, uh, there's a couple of things I want to get to on Bowsman, but Galdi, is there anything you want to say in particular about, we look at this group of people that surrounds Konstantin Milofiev, and I'm always fascinated by this group because there's Charles Bowsman, of course. Ed Lazansky is going to feature in our conversation in just a bit, so we're going to hold off on talking to him. But there's also Alexander Dugan, who's sort of the mastermind of, the, you know, mm. the way the world is going to look in the new Russian empire. And then Jack Hannock, who used to work for Sean Hannity at Fox News, of, of all people. <laughs> So, uh, you know, does it yeah. tell you anything, Gal? It does. So, Alexander Dugan also was pretty close to Alex Jones. And so, when I look at kind of this disinformation chaos agent circle, it leads me a lot to where Alex Jones may, you know, come up with his theories or, you know, work on his theories. I have a video that I, I think I sent you a clip where uh, Charles and Alex are talking, and apparently, Charles and the Russian television network were doing a documentary on Alex Jones because he just gets all the stories on Russia so correct. Can you imagine? So, <laughs> you know, I, I found um, he, he, was also awarded, <laughs> he was also awarded a humanitarian award by the public facing group of the SVR. So the same year, I think that uh, um, maybe it was Bettina won the same year that the two of them won an award at the same time. I didn't know that he was such a human rights figure, but wow. there you go. Yeah, I think yeah. Dugan's a very important figure because no offense to either man he's kind of like the bannon of russia mm -hmm. in many way ways it, yeah. and you know there's a lot of people that are involved in the kteon institute which is one of his power centers and you know his real role is as an ideologue or ideologist but ideologue you know somebody who's coming up with the ideas and the philosophies that they then take and spread around gives them a theoretical underpinning or philosophical underpinning for why they can do what they're doing and it does seem to hold to them together in some ways well russia is kind of like that they'll have an ideology mm -hmm. a doctrine 
you know, I always think about, you know, the hunt for Red October and there's this one scene where, you know, they just say, son, Russians don't take a fart without a plan. <laughs> but they're just, they're invertebrate diarists and they like the written word. Mm, absolutely. I've got a couple of things I want to show you about Bowsman, which I think are going to be interesting. The first thing I want to play you is a clip. Uh, this is from, a, I guess it was another propaganda effort that he was on some uh, white nationalist talk show or podcast, and he was discussing um, American democracy. So let's listen to what he had to say about you know, his views of American democracy. And what they've definitely done is they've uh, rejected democracy. Now, I, I, they wouldn't be happy for me to say that because that I say that because they... Um, they make a big deal about you know their elections and they claim that we're a democratic country, but that is definitely a fig leaf. Um, and it's very interesting that uh, many, many Russians think democracy is ridiculous and stupid and a fraud and a fake and something that should that that just doesn't work and shouldn't ever be used as a way to govern the country um and it's openly discussed here on the talk shows uh there are a lot of monarchists in russia um the the russian church uh is very powerful and very you know influential uh and they're mostly they're straight up monarchists so, you know, isn't that interesting? There he is talking about monarchies and, you know, you think about autocracies. I and mean, certainly it's a point of that they're arguing for, at least on the right wing, that, you know, we should be returning to those days, even here in the United States. So he's pushing Putin's points directly there. Oh, yeah. I mean, if there's one thing to say about what comes out of Russia, probably 90% of it is state propaganda. Yeah. yeah. I yeah. mean, you know, that's very, very true. But also Red Ice is, um, that's a neo-Nazi podcast, right. the Red Ice podcast. There was an infamous incident with a Florida teacher who had a secret identity and went on there and uh, then got exposed. Yes. And I think fired. But, you know, one of the big things that you notice when you start researching all these Russian, you know, Russian propagandists folks is that they tend to not have many problems with white nationalism, neo-Nazism or any sort of right wing extremism. Mm -hmm. um, they just don't seem very sensitive to it. No, they don't. It seems to be they're quite in favor of it. He goes on in another clip, he talks about how, you know, Russia is very proudly a white Christian state. And, you know, that really is the model that many people on the right are think that the United States can become. Of course, it's impossible, but they, they that's what they are trying to do. Um, well, that is Duganism. It's traditionalism. Yeah, right. Exactly. You know, and it's ironic because you have people like Steve Bannon running around talking about globalists. I'll translate mm -hmm. that for you, Jewish people. Mm -hmm. Meanwhile, he's going all over the world, you know, with these traditionalist movements, whether it's the UK or Brazil mm -hmm. or Italy, you know, there's actually the traditionalist party in Austria, you know, gained power and just recently uh, started to lose it. But that's kind of the new playbook. Uh, it used mm -hmm. to be the communist international. Now it's the neo-Naziist international. I know. It's unbelievable. We're living in this world. Thank you for spending your time with Narrative and stay tuned. There's much more to this conversation in our next episode. Narrative is made possible by viewers and listeners like you who join at patreon.com forward slash narrative. Join today and support truly independent journalism. Patreon.com forward slash narrative.